Hello EMIG listeners, this is Zach Bolte, a second year med student here at OHSU. And today I'm going to be talking to my friend and colleague, Blaze Amodi. Blaze and I played percussion in high school band together, but more importantly, spent a number of years as flight medics in the Oregon National Guard Medevac Unit based in Salem. Blaze is currently the program director of Reach Air Medical Services in Oregon, which is one of the air ambulance companies that operates here. We're going to be chatting about how they operate, what services they provide, and what it looks like interacting with them as a sending or receiving physician. Blaze, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Zach. So to start, tell me a bit about your background and how it got you here. Yeah, absolutely. So I spent 15 years in multiple disciplines of emergency and transport medicine, uh, both in some critical care settings and then EM settings. I've worked for several fire departments, private ambulance, sort of on the ground side, seen some of those logistics. I've worked uh, at a level one trauma center, both in the ED, and then I worked at the same facility, same organization, the CVICU. And then I have nine years in the military, both as a ground medic and critical care flight medic, where I got to spend some time in a couple different countries overseas. Okay. Yeah, currently uh, I was a critical care flight paramedic with REACH and recently moved into the position of a program director here in Oregon. Okay. And can you describe that job a little bit? Uh, the program director and the clinical base manager, along with the lead pilots for the bases, are sort of the local leadership to facilitate the crew members uh, ultimately accomplishing their mission. So it's going to be something like tracking all the training, scheduling, building academies, building the, the base meetings, and then conveying the commander's intent from the overall company. Tell me about the role that REACH and other air ambulance companies play here in Oregon, and perhaps some of the special capabilities that they have. Yeah, absolutely. So there are multiple services in Oregon. Uh, I have several colleagues and friends that work for, for all of them. We generally offer similar products, and we're, we're regionally specific. So we can talk about some of the generic air ambulances, because if you ask for an air ambulance at a smaller facility, you're going to get the closest ambulance that fits the need for that patient and not necessarily a, a specific branded aircraft. So even if you're in a region where my aircraft generally services and if we're committed to a different call, you'll get the next in aircraft just so the patient is getting the best care immediately. So I want to talk about some of those, those generic thoughts versus specifically uh, what we do and how we take care of the patients, but we can talk about some of the the just generic what you expect when you call for an air ambulance. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. Perfect. Yeah, so the way it's set up, um, unless it's a specialty team, you're going to get a flight nurse and a flight paramedic who both have additional critical care training beyond their standard academic process. Okay. So with that comes um, some decentralized command for making decisions they have expanded protocols beyond that of a general ground transport entity with medications, but they also generally have a lot of autonomy in, in either getting medications from the sending physician or from the sending facility, uh, and they'll have protocols for those even though they might not carry them. Okay, sure. So some of that is weight-based or just frequency-based. We can't necessarily stock everything because then it would just expire. So there are a lot of additional medications that can be given and, and there aren't really any limitations to that 
And that's a conversation between the flight team, you as the sending physician, and then potentially the receiving physician, who's hopefully a subject matter expert in whatever disease pathology is going on for this for this patient. Okay. We talked about training a little bit. Uh, We talked about uh, medications. So I imagine there's a large scope of medications. You don't necessarily carry all of them, but if you get them from the facility that you're transporting from, then it's likely that those are in your scope. Do you ever encounter a situation where a physician wants to send a medication that the crew is not certified to give or unfamiliar with? Uh, definitely the second part of that question. There, there are medications that there may be a crew member and potentially both crew members who are unfamiliar with it. You know, it, it is hard to, to keep all of that up or, or maybe they're not as familiar with it as they are with other medications. And I think that that's probably a natural process. So if they have a specific order from the sending physician, then it makes it relatively simple. Um, and they'll have a brief moment to either do kind of a handoff on that medication if there may be something to watch out for or something in the titration of it, or if the patient is on multiple medications, uh, how it could interact with other medications if you end up having to uh, titrate some of the medications. And we see that a lot with the really sick, like Impella patients on eight, nine, or potentially more drips, where you titrate one medication expecting that the result of just that medication titration, and it ends up affecting multiple other ones. There's a lot of like empirical knowledge and knowledge gained um, doing the clinical training labs and working with more experienced clinicians that generally tackled those. But you could be put, you could find yourself in a situation where the flight crew is not doesn't know all the pharmacodynamics of a specific medication. And if there's very straightforward orders, or if they have the ability to call the receiving physician and get their thoughts on it, then we've never run into a situation where they couldn't give something. Okay, so it sounds like if I'm an ED physician in the future and I want to send someone with one of these air assets, I can send them with the medications that I would want them to be on in the hospital if I was there, is sort of what I'm hearing. Yep, absolutely. And the the sooner you can push that information to them, you know, the dispatch algorithm is supposed to be very efficient because you're trying to get the patient out, sort of, and we relate this to uh, law enforcement events. If there's shots fired, you don't you don't get all the information before you dispatch more units. Sure, yeah. You dispatch more units and then you get more information. Um, or just like a trauma activation, the sooner we can pass along that information and the more prepared they are. Or another thing that we run into is you've decided you want that medication to go with the patient. It hasn't been drawn from the pharmacy, especially in the smaller facilities. Some of that is... Uh, takes a lot of time. It's a very time-consuming process for certain medications. Oh, to get from the pharmacy. To get from the pharmacy. And so there have been times where we've had a patient completely packaged and the sending physician had the intent to send us with something and it's not their bedside. And now the patient is, is purely waiting their transport on this medication. And the, the flight crew will generally have the autonomy to decide um, and, and they'll have dialogue with you. They're not going to make any sort of decision without at least having dialogue. Is this a medication that's worth waiting for, or is there something else that we can do in the meantime? Because um, you do have that dichotomy of the you need speed or you need critical care, and sometimes you need both. So figuring out really where that cost-benefit analysis is. Okay, so let's say I'm an ED doc that wants to send a patient by air ambulance. How does this process get started? A lot of the smaller communities, and, and I can't speak to 
to a universal process because that's unfortunately not how it works. <laughs> sure. You'll have to you'll have to find out your institutional policies and guidelines. It it often looks like they tell um, the health unit coordinator or health secretary or whatever the job description is, who is kind of the gateway in and out of the ED. And and often it could be at a small facility, one person intaking walk-ins and also trying to call your air ambulance. So you would let that person know and and they end up initiating that call to dispatch and they generally know who your closest assets are. Um, most air asset, once we get the call, if we can't provide the service because we're out of the area or whatever it may be, we will often help assist in that legwork of getting hold of the next person because it's already taxing potentially to call one number. Uh, and then the nursing staff are generally great at meeting the expectations for getting documentation and paperwork together. Um, so a lot of that process will end up happening, allowing you to manage your patient. There just are there are resource limitations in some of the small facilities. And how does that information get passed to the flight crew? Yeah, so typically how that works is our dispatch will send us a pre-alert page. The second you call in, they want to get us moving. So they want to get us checking weather in the local area. As soon as they have a receiving destination, checking weather there and for alternate landing if we can't land there and we have to land at the local airport. All right. We generally get a patient weight because weight matters when you're flying and yeah. for flight planning. Um, and we used to get a little bit of specialty equipment information as well. Uh, so we carry things not on every call, but just as far as flight. So we carry like a tocometer for high risk, uh, OB, and things like that. But it's not it's not a standard piece of equipment that lives on the aircraft because it's not something. We oh, use okay. So any of that specialty equipment information, but they'll always be flying with vents, pumps, invasive monitoring ability, their standard critical care med package, and then the ability to run a scene call. So any sort of specialty equipment, so that it gets us moving as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. If there's a situation, and this is actually relatively key, if there's a situation where we have to land somewhere and there's going to be a ground leg, so either talking a fixed wing asset or the weather's bad enough that the rotor wing has to land somewhere that they can shoot an approach into if they can't get into the local hospital. Quick interjection. The ground leg he's referring to here is if the patient is needing to be moved from the hospital to the aircraft by ground ambulance. This can happen if the helicopter can't land at the hospital or if the aircraft is a fixed wing, as in a plane, and it is at the airfield or airport. Generally, rotary wing aircraft, aka helicopters, aren't as able to fly in bad weather, specifically poor visibility, as fixed wing aircraft can. Sometimes putting them in, a, in an ALS ambulance and driving them to the hospital um, will save that patient time, mm -hmm. and if it's a, if it's a time-critical patient, there's there's just risks to that. So uh, not the ground ambulances aren't always trained in getting extra meds for if we have to deviate for weather. And the last thing we want to do is run out of a, you know, a medication or getting orders from a physician clarified, things like that. So in that case where we can't fly and do a face-to-face, -face, which, is, which is the way that we attempt to operate, sure. we'll actually call and talk to the, the bedside nurse and get a, a nursing report over the phone right before we take off. So it sounds like logistics and priorities are always important considerations. 
Correct. And so we just try to mitigate playing telephone, but we also are still understanding that the time-critical patients, us going to bedside, if it's going to add 30 minutes on to their transport, uh, might not be doing the right thing. So you mentioned the bedside interface. Tell me more about that. Are you speaking with the nursing staff or a physician? Are you looking at an EHR on the computer? Is there paper documentation that you're taking? It's, uh, it is a very dynamic environment. There's not a, there's not a specific standard to any of these. Sure. So it's, it's part of why we, we seek out people that have that autonomy and they can operate with a little bit of that decision-making. So I know a lot of crews build in the way with their partners that they like to do things. There is, there's a company policy, so there is something to fall back onto, but every patient and every facility has some individual needs. Um, the way it generally looks is both patients will be simultaneously doing an assessment and they'll, they'll have differentiated roles. So in both Oregon, providers. Uh, both flight team members gotcha. will have differentiated who's going to be the patient lead and who's going to be the crew lead. And it, it alternates in Oregon. Um, it's identical scope of practice for the nurse and for the paramedic. Mm. So that way one person can focus on a he quick head-to-toe assessment, transitioning, event, pumps, whatever it may be, asking for additional stuff from pharmacy. Well, the other person can do some, a relatively simple task like attaching all the monitor uh, to the patient and getting a good bedside report. There are situations where time isn't the critical component, but getting a really good handoff is. And those are times where we will have a clinician you know, stand by the computer so they can go over a good detailed past medical history um, where where understanding sort of the current present illness is going to be the most important part for the transport. Okay. And as far as medications that that patient may need during transport, is that something that the hospital should be getting from their pharmacy and sending with the patient? Or is that something that you can provide on the aircraft? It depends on what it is. Yeah, so there, most of the common, uh, we carry some redundancies for different uh, vasoactive meds that patients might be on. Uh, propofol is one of the ones where logistically carrying around an aircraft isn't useful. So a patient that's on propofol, getting extra propofol just in case we do have to deviate for weather or anything like that, um, or if we have to change the rate, those are going to be things that having those bedside when we arrive there are going to be beneficial. Uh, other meds that, that might be less commonly used in a critical care transport environment, we often probably won't be carrying, and so we'll either need to get that, or a majority of those meds are either lower priority or at slow enough rates that they're not going to, they're not going to complete their course in the transport environment. So all of that can be sort of assessed bedside if we have to do it. Okay, so that's medications. What about monitoring? What sort of monitoring capabilities do you have? Do, does a physician need to send any sort of monitoring capabilities? So for monitoring, we have uh, we currently have a, a Zoll monitor that allows us to do two invasive uh, invasive monitoring devices. We have our own intraortic balloon pump, so you don't even have to send that with us. And then we have a transport version. It's lighter, but it's similar to most of the hospital versions. There's a couple different brands, but we have adapters, so it is very interchangeable between brands. 
So we can take that and then the Impella devices, we do some Impella transports and that's a device that you would have to send with us in the case that that's coming uh, from from your organization, but that's generally not going to be coming out of the ED, obviously. Sure. So uh, other than that, we there are bases that um, currently do portable and bedside ultrasounds. Uh, our bases are not currently doing that. Oh, okay. I'm sure you're working on fixing that. Yeah, so there's that's uh, up and coming. <laughs> to make our listeners aware, Blaze's favorite thing to talk about over the last four years has been the need for implementation of pre-hospital ultrasound. I'm with you, bud. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. So we talked about getting meds prepped from pharmacy, anticipating what may need to be given during transport, swapping over monitoring to the transport teams' hardware, having a solid handoff, what else are important considerations in packaging the patient? So the the thing we're we're a tool that is being offered to the community, not not an independent entity. It's part of the healthcare continuum. So one of the things, especially from the program director standpoint and service delivery standpoint, if if you think there's the potential that you need to send a patient out or you need um, an air ambulance to meet you at the ED, even for something that's coming in from the field, just based on the report that you're getting. That's something that early activation, and I've been working with several different places to create algorithms for that so that it, it is a little more objective. I would much rather our, our helicopter and our team get there and be waiting and ready to see if the patient needs transport. Um, <clears throat> I sort of view everything as, if it was my family member, what would I want? And I, I do think about the implications of an air ambulance bill, but I also think about what happens if, if they needed this rapid transport, this air transport, or if they needed critical care and they didn't get it, you don't get to make that mistake very many times. Right. So if you think there's the need for it, get a team there. And, and it, you know, if you're a new physician or a phys- even if you're an experienced physician in a small area, it's another place where we've really seen just being another resource um, to talk to with the transport perspective, um, because if you're talking to a receiving physician on the other the other side, there's that that big blind spot. And so, get our teams there, talk with them, you know, find out if there's a way to stabilize them more to go, um, or if they're too unstable to transport, but we have the ability to stabilize them. You know, whatever it may be, getting them there bedside early to talk to them and, and ultimately they don't have to take the patient if it's not you know if the field didn't end up having an appropriate report or they get there and you you know your expertise has decided that maybe there's another mode that's better than an air ambulance um absolutely they're there to assist so getting that moving early isn't an indication for that then they have to go by air ambulance sure. um, i would say that's ultimately one of the largest barriers is that by the time we get activated, the patient's now 30 minutes or 45 minutes behind where they could have been. Okay, so if I'm an ED doc at a rural ED and a report comes in from the ambulance describing a pretty sick patient, from your perspective, I should feel free to start that air ambulance request process. Yeah, absolutely. And the air ambulance crew might say that they're too sick to go by air, but they'll augment a ground ambulance where there's more room and you can have additional hands. So yeah, making that making that decision uh, with a little bit of their input just gives you a better picture of how to serve your patient. Um, if it's a patient that sounds like it, your the services at your organization can't meet their needs. 
So what does that look like if the air ambulance has decided that that patient is too sick to go by air and we need to explore other venues for getting that patient to a higher level of care? What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So this is this happens um, relatively regularly, and it ends up, you know, operating in one of those fifty shades of gray, so to speak, where if the patient doesn't get transported, then they're ult- they're ultimately um, going to perish in your organization. Right. If they do get transported, the likelihood of a poor outcome in transport is very high. Sure. So that's the situation where. <clears throat> Uh, the collective decision, I mean, as the sending physician, you're ultimately responsible for that patient until they get to the receiving hospital. Uh, and you've already done your appropriate consults um, and determined that this is where they need to go for definitive care. If there's no way to temporize that patient, sometimes sending that patient, even with the, the likelihood that they'll have a bad outcome, could be the right call. And then the other aspect is figuring out sort of where it fits ethically and then just maybe having that conversation with family and that they won't survive a transport and they can't get the care they need here um, are real-world possibilities, absolutely. So I'm going to stop this here for now. There will likely be more podcasts with Blaze talking about other subjects within this theme, but I think that's a decent amount of information we covered. A few takeaways. One. An air ambulance in Oregon can either be a plane or a helicopter and almost always has a specially and highly trained nurse and paramedic on it. Two, they are able to give basically any medication the sending physician would want that patient to have, but it may need to be pulled from the pharmacy in advance, and how it should be given needs to be conveyed. Lastly, which is a big one, is not to delay proper patient care by waiting too long to call for air interfacility transport. The consequences of calling and not needing are much less than needing and not calling soon enough. Plus, especially if you're on your own, having another couple providers experiencing critical care can't hurt. So with that, thank you for listening, and Blaze, thanks so much for chatting. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me.